his trophy store at Ramsbury with 60 items of women's clothing. Everything about his history and behaviour indicates that we haven't, and probably never will, get to the bottom of his full offending. And that in turn means that there are any number of mothers and fathers who will never find their daughter again. This is Red Rum. Stories about the true victims of crime. Episode 60, Sean and Becky. Sean O'Callaghan lived in Swindon, a town in southwest England close by to Bristol and Reading and about two hours away from London. She and her boyfriend Kevin Reap lived together and both had fairly active social lives. On Friday the 18th of March 2011, Sean and Kevin had spent the day separately. Kevin had been out in Cheltenham just under an hour away from Swindon and Sean was getting ready for a big night out. She and a few of her friends had organised to have dinner together before planning to head out to a couple of bars. Sean left her house and headed deeper into the old town part of Swindon. She met her friends and the group enjoyed a meal and some drinks together before heading on to two more bars to have some drinks and ending up at Suju Nightclub. Suju Nightclub sits on the busy high street and at that time on a Friday night, saw streams of people walking past and driving past as it's on a main road. The group partied for a few more hours, and a little bit before 3am, Sean told her friends she was going to head home. She and Kevin only lived a short walk away from the club, so it wasn't a big deal to her friends that she would walk home on her own, rather than getting a taxi or getting Kevin to pick her up. CCTV tracks Sean leaving the nightclub alone at 2.53am. Four minutes later, CCTV picks up Sean walking past the Goddard Arms pub. That's the last time anyone saw Sean O'Callaghan before she disappeared. Around half an hour later, Kevin was at the house he shared with Sean and began to grow concerned when she hadn't returned home. He tried not to worry and convinced himself she must still be out with her friends. At 3.24am, Kevin texted Sean but received no reply. He spent the next few hours through the night and into the early hours of the morning attempting to get hold of Sean but had no luck. The next morning, with no sign of Sean, no word from her and none of her friends knowing where she'd gotten to, Kevin called the police to report her as missing. Officers accepted that this was completely out of character for Sean and a search was launched by the police, with the help of a huge number of volunteers. Over 400 people, some of Sean's friends and family, and other people of Swindon who had heard about Sean's disappearance and wanted to help. The fact that Sean hadn't been heard from and wasn't staying with friends or family meant that officers needed to try and find out what Sean's last known moments were. They quickly came to understand that Sean had left Suju just before 3am and the CCTV placed Sean nearby the Goddard Arms at 3.24am. Police checked CCTV from the lead up to the last sighting of Sean and they found some suspicious footage that showed a car circling the streets surrounding that area of town. The car is seen going up and down the streets not far from where Sean would have walked that time of night. Investigators located more CCTV footage of Sean, but it was unfortunately really blurry and with that time of night and the bright gleam from the headlights of cars driving past and from one car that stopped, it was hard to gain any real clarity on the situation. The investigating team hit a block 
book, when they realised how tricky it was going to be to actually see what happened after Sean walked towards the car that had circled and then parked up one of the nearby streets. The options were that when Sean passed nearby to where that car had stopped, she may have gotten into the car voluntarily, perhaps believing that she was getting a lift home, which raised the possibility that car was a taxi. The other option was that she walked straight past. The area of the road behind the car and in the direction that Sean had been walking is out of range of the CCTV camera, so it was impossible to tell. And the final option was that Sean had been taken against her will into the parked car. After calling in a video expert, the team did manage to refine some parts of the CCTV footage and were able to actually get some detail about the suspicious car in question. It was identified that the car was most likely a dark-coloured Toyota Avensis made between 2003 and 2008, and that the car had distinguishing marks on it that looked lighter than the colour of the body of the vehicle. They theorised that these may be stickers. After that, investigators trawled through AMPR or automatic number plate registration data from the surrounding areas, which helped to identify number plates in the hours surrounding the time Sean disappeared. This information helped to zero in on the suspicious car, which they realised had been captured just a few streets away and just minutes after Sean disappeared from all CCTV. The car was registered to a man called Christopher Hallowell. The investigation team looked to confirm any more information about his whereabouts on the evening Sean went missing. They approached the taxi firm he worked for, Five Star Taxis, and they confirmed that Christopher had worked the evening of Sean's disappearance, but picked up his last fare at 1.10am. He then let them know that he'd be clocking off for the night and going home, and he turned off his GPS-tracked handset at 2.13am. This is a full 40 minutes before Sean went missing. Meanwhile, further CCTV footage had been gathered and Christopher's car is seen a number of times driving slowly past Suju nightclub and the surrounding streets well after he claimed to be heading home. Whilst looking into Christopher's next moves, the investigating officers launched surveillance of him owing to the fact that Sean was still missing and could be in immediate danger. After looking at Christopher's car, Officers also identified that it was the registered taxi that he used for the company, as well as for personal use. And there were stickers placed in the areas that they'd previously identified on the CCTV footage of the car near Sean. They also found that the following evening, at 6.51pm, Christopher sent a message to Taxi Control stating that he would be starting work at 10pm that night. He then turned the GPS handset off, before heading up through Marlborough and towards Oxford. The next known location of Christopher was 10 minutes before his 10pm shift started when he turned his GPS handset back on. Christopher claimed that the rest of the evening was seemingly normal and uneventful, but officers found evidence that Christopher had driven to the cul-de-sac where Sean lived. This was interesting to police because Sean's address hadn't been released to the press, and it was unlikely to have been purely a coincidence that Christopher had known Sean's address, that Christopher had driven to Sean's cul-de-sac. Meanwhile, officers continued to appeal to the public for information that may lead to understanding what had happened to Sean. They offered a £20,000 reward, which was doubled by an anonymous donor. 
They also had Shan's boyfriend Kevin and some other members of her family speak at a press conference. During this, police outlined that Kevin had been ruled out as a suspect, as well as releasing some of the last CCTV images of Shan as she'd been leaving Suju that evening. Officers also released information of the location of Shan's phone when it had been found in Savanake Forest. The forest consisted of dense woodland and they called in for help from Shan's family and friends in searching the area and looking for Shan. Christopher Halliwell did not join that search, but he did make his way up to Suju nightclub to collect a missing persons flyer with Shan's image and information about her on. He took the flyer back to his taxi and displayed it in the window of his car. CCTV shows Christopher driving to a car wash nearby where he dumped a car seat cover and headrest covers into a nearby wheelie bin. Detective Superintendent Fulcher decided to use a press release to try and tempt Christopher back to wherever he may have taken Sean in an attempt to get him to lead officers right to her. The statement outlined the facts of the investigation and said that it was progressing and they weren't far off finding Sean. They added that they had to postpone the investigation search for that evening because of lack of light, but that they would resume the following day. They hoped Christopher's next moves would lead them to Sean, but unfortunately they didn't. By this point, officers were preparing to arrest Christopher. The circumstantial evidence was mounting up and now they had managed to collect DNA evidence that forced any doubt out of their minds. Officers retrieved those discarded seats and headrest covers from nearby to the car wash, and forensic evidence was collected. It wasn't long before the DNA evidence returned as a forensic match to Sean. On Thursday the 24th of March 2011, Christopher made his way to his local Asda supermarket. At 11.05am, officers arrested him and charged him on suspicion of kidnap. They also seized his taxi. It wasn't clear at this point whether Sean was still alive or not. They believed Christopher had most likely abducted her, but they didn't have the evidence to prove anything past this. There was no body, but they did have a number of leads as to where Sean might be. They had come across a number of CCTV clips that showed journeys Christopher had taken over the previous few days since Sean's disappearance. On the Monday, three days earlier, Christopher had been tracked driving to Marlborough at 2.46am and that he'd taken a different route back past Uffington. They believed he may have dumped evidence in a field nearby this location. They also had officers who were surveilling him search the area nearby to where he'd been seen driving the day before his arrest. On arrival, they found a fire at Pack Hill. The charred remains of more seat covers from his car were found. An urgent interview was then conducted with Christopher by Detective Superintendent Fulcher. Quote, The questioning is only to establish the whereabouts of Sean and will cease once the risk to Sean's safety has been averted. He directed the arresting officers not to go to the police station to conduct the interview, as per PACE, or the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. Instead, the detective instructed the team to drive Christopher straight over to Barbary Castle, one of the areas police suspected Sean may be. After speaking for just nine minutes, Christopher admitted that he knew where Sean was and he'd take them to her. At 1.21pm that afternoon, officers were led to a section of the field where they found Sean. Her body was lying face down, naked from her waist to her ankles, and there was evidence of blunt trauma to the back of her head 
and bruising to her face. It was clear she'd been dead for some time, but that wasn't all. After arriving at that site, Christopher told Detective Superintendent Fulcher, quote, you and me need to have a chat, and that, quote, I'm a sick fucker, do you want another one? Unsure what he was about to find, the detective agreed, and they made their way to East Leach in Gloucestershire. On the way, Christopher reportedly became emotional and said that normal people don't go around killing each other. Over the next few days, officers embarked on a huge search of a field in East Leach that Christopher had led them to. In a police interview, he told officers that he had killed this woman sometime between 2002 and 2004. The fact he couldn't place the exact year he killed Becky seemed to point towards the fact there may have been more victims. The woman who he had killed seven or so years before he killed Sean was Becky Godden Edwards. Becky was a sex worker who Christopher had been besotted with. He'd met her whilst he was working as a taxi driver in the red light district part of town three years before he'd killed her. He began paying her for sex and this professional relationship continued for the next three years. In the early hours of the 3rd of January, Christopher had picked up Becky just outside of Desire and Destiny nightclub. She got into his taxi and just a few hours later, he had sex with her and then strangled her to death. Becky's family reported her missing in 2007, but because of the nature of her work, it's likely the disappearance wasn't taken as seriously as it should have been. On the 26th of March, 2011, officers made a public announcement to say that they had found human remains in the area of East Leach that Christopher had led them to. They confirmed that the remains belonged to a woman who was abducted in Swindon back in 2003. That same day, Christopher was charged with the murder of Sean Callahan, and just over a week later, on what would have been Becky Godden Edwards' 29th birthday, officers arrived at Karen Edward, Becky's mum's, front door to tell her that they had found Becky's body. It's not known exactly what Christopher did with Becky's body after he'd killed her, but most of her remains were found in the field he'd led the officer to that March afternoon. Becky's head, however, wasn't found in the search and still remains missing to this day. Just under two months later, on the 23rd of May, officers charged Christopher with the murder of Becky. After Christopher's arrest, one of his colleagues came forward to say that during the search of Savanake Forest and just four days after Sean had gone missing, Christopher had gone into the five-star taxi office to collect his wages. He said to his colleague, quote, who knows what or who you find buried out there? There could be loads of people over the years. Officers believed that Sean had come across Christopher's taxi by chance on the night he abducted her. They think she got into his car and asked him to take her home, believing he was still working his shift as a taxi driver. An inquest into Sean's death found that it's likely she died of head injuries. She'd suffered two stab wounds to her head and neck, as well as compression to her neck. Her body was identified by her mum's partner, Pete, who had known Sean for a little over four years. Despite the mounting evidence against Christopher and his confession, at first, he decided to plead not guilty to the charge of murdering Sean. But a few months later, he did change his plea to guilty, and so there was no need for a trial. Christopher was sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 25 years, and this sentence was upheld by the Court of Appeal. As for the conviction in relation to Becky's murder, 
there were a few complexities because of police work conducted at the time of Christopher's confession. The fact that the detective had involved emergency powers, usually reserved for threat to life situations, was found to go against protocol. He failed to caution Christopher properly before his confessions and leading officers to the bodies of both Sean and separately Becky. It was ruled that the detective went against standard guidelines when he failed to caution Christopher and he was found guilty of gross misconduct by a disciplinary panel. This resulted in Detective Superintendent Fulcher being handed a final written warning after which he then resigned. He responded to this by stating that he believed the situation in retrieving information on Sean and Becky's whereabouts to be on a quote, knife edge. He said he worried that Christopher might change his mind any moment and decide not to take the team to where he'd hidden their bodies. Following that written warning, the detective left Wiltshire Police, but he does continue to this day to speak out about his belief that there are other victims. This is owing to the discovery of a huge amount of women's clothing and accessory items that Christopher had put in a pond in Ramsbury, as well as the time elapsed between the murders. Quote, The tragedy for me is that quite clearly, and it's not my romanticism, quite clearly there are other victims. As I have said time and time again, Halliwell abducted from a public place Sean O'Callaghan and murdered her within moments of her getting in his car. He killed Becky Godden eight years earlier. Everything about his MO, everything about the calls he received and made from prison, the notion that police are investigating me for eight murders, his own words. His trophy store at Ramsbury with 60 items of women's clothing, everything about his history and behaviour indicates that we haven't and probably never will get to the bottom of his full offending. And that in turn means that there are any number of mothers and fathers who will never find their daughter again. The detective went on to say how bitter he is about the situation, claiming that if he had chance to, he may have gotten to the bottom of this and discovered more victims. He added, quote, If I've saved a victim as a consequence of sacrificing my career, then I'm happy with that deal. Becky's mother Karen spoke of her support for the detective's actions of what she deemed necessity. Quote, Had he followed the guidelines, then Becky would never have been found. She would have never come into this equation. Karen delivered a victim impact statement, quote, I never had a body to kiss goodbye before she was buried. But then, of course, she already had been buried in a lonely field in the middle of nowhere for years, just left to rot. She was brought back home in that coffin. I was told not to open it, and the reason for that was because all that was in it was just my daughter's bones and part of Becky's skeleton. Where was her head? Well, that has never been found. I stayed with her coffin for three weeks until the day of her funeral. One week after what would have been Becky's 29th birthday, her friends and family organised a memorial service. They released 200 balloons that had photos of Becky attached. They also attended her funeral in Old Town, where mourners were encouraged to wear splashes of pink to celebrate Becky's life. Although Christopher's confession and the fact he led officers to Becky's body were deemed inadmissible in court, there were a number of other pieces of evidence that did lead to his eventual further arrest. The evidence gathered also pointed to Wiltshire Police's incompetence when it came to the years after Sean's murder. Police sat on evidence that could have allowed a quicker conviction for Becky's murder. Because of this, Becky's family had to wait a further five years after Becky's body was found to see some kind of justice. 
Christopher was eventually sentenced in 2016 to life in prison with a whole life order for the murder of Becky. This means he will never have the possibility of parole. Police watchdog found that Christopher could have been arrested five years before that, back when Becky's body had been found, if they had acted quickly enough and thoroughly. It said that there was ample evidence to prosecute him back in 2011 for Becky's murder. A soil sample was taken from one of Christopher's spades found in his home, and it wasn't forensically examined until three years later. The spade had traces of a rare soil that matched the soil in the field where Becky's body had been found. Officers also searched a pond in Ramsbury village, where they found a huge number of items belonging to various women. The pond was identified as Christopher's trophy store, including the discovery of Becky's cardigan and Sean's high-heeled boot. But the pond wasn't actually investigated thoroughly until 2014, three years after his arrest. Given the time that had passed, the items had degraded and lost any forensic potential. Back to the time Becky had been murdered, Christopher's car had broken down in the late hours of the same night. He called for roadside recovery and an RAC driver helped to get him back on the road. The police were made aware of this RAC roadside call in 2011, but only gathered detailed evidence three years later. One of Christopher's ex-cellmates from prison agreed with the potential that Becky and Sean were just two of many more victims. Quote, he used to ask me about killing. He said, how many people do you need to kill before you become a serial killer? He just had a thing about them. He wanted people to be proud of him or an area to be afraid of him. Don't ask me why, but that's what he wanted to be. He used to get this magazine called True Detective with stories about people getting knocked off. His favourite book was about the Moors murders with a picture of Myra Hindley on the front. It is widely assumed that Christopher may have killed more people, with that list expanding all the time. The former detective superintendent Fulcher wrote a book in 2017 with the foreword, quote, there is overwhelming evidence pointing to the notion that Halliwell is responsible for many further victims beyond the two murders for which he's been convicted. The book goes on to outline his belief that Christopher had murdered 24-year-old Sally Ann John, who was also a sex worker living in Swindon at the time of her disappearance. Sally John was last seen on the 8th of September 1995, a little before 11pm. Initially, her disappearance was treated as a missing persons inquiry. One of Sally's friends, also called Sally Ann, was working as a sex worker back in 1995 when Sally had gone missing. Sally Ann spoke to police about how she believed Christopher had been the one to abduct and ultimately kill Sally John. She said that she was picked up by Christopher and he had paid to have sex with her. But whilst they were in his car, she says that Christopher put his hands around her neck. She said she was able to escape and it wasn't long after that that she left Swindon. She remembers asking Sally John to come with her, but she didn't want to leave Swindon because she was close to her mum. The investigation into Sally John's disappearance was upgraded to murder investigation in 2014, although her body has never been found. The police did conduct a 10-day dig search at a property where Christopher used to live, but they didn't find anything of significant interest. In 2015, three men were arrested on suspicion of kidnap and murder, but were bailed without further charges in Sally Ann's case. In 2017, an episode of Crime Watch revealed that a number of postcards had been sent to one of Sally's friends a few weeks after she had disappeared. 
the handwriting was shown to not be a match to Sally's and that they had clearly been forged. No further evidence has been found and no action has been taken against Christopher Halliwell. As of 2023, Sally Ann John's murder remains unsolved.